This podcast is part of the National Archives Voices of the Armistice campaign, commemorating 90 years since the end of the First World War. Hear more voices at nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash armistice. My name is William Spencer. I am the Principal Military Specialist at the National Archives at Kew. ADM 1 stroke 8546 stroke 319. An unofficial account of the armistice negotiations. Commander Bago was on the staff of Admiral Weems, who was primarily responsible for dealing with the British side of the negotiations for the armistice. On Thursday the 7th of November 1918, the British mission, consisting of Admiral Wems, Chief of Naval Staff, Admiral Hope, Deputy First Sea Lord, Captain Marriott, RN, Naval Assistant to Chief of Naval Staff, and myself, arrived at the Hotel Maurice in Paris, where we were the guests of the French government. That afternoon, the mission left in cars for Saint-Louis, where the Chief of Naval Staff visited Marshal Foch's headquarters. Subsequently, the mission had tea at the headquarters of the British military liaison officer. These headquarters are situated in a fine chateau, close to Sanli, standing in large grounds containing, among other things, a racing stable and a training track. About 5.30pm, the mission again left by car and boarded Marshal Foch's train at Sanli Station. As the British mission was living in it for three days, a few details of the train may be of interest. It consists of some seven or eight coaches, of which two were sleeping cars, providing cabin accommodation for the British and French officers, one coach containing an office and conference room, and two or three coaches containing men's quarters, dynamo, telephone exchange, etc. This train had been used constantly by Marshal Foch during the war for travelling about to various parts of the front. The thing that struck one was the fact that Marshal Foch appeared to run the war with the assistance of only five officers. These were the Chief of Staff, General Weygand, two staff officers and two officers who acted as secretaries and interpreters. He was, of course, in constant touch by telephone and courier with his headquarters at Saint-Louis, but this was also a comparatively modest establishment. Marshal Foch's train arrived at some old heavy gun sidings in the middle of the forest of Compiègne about 7pm and remained there during the whole of the negotiations except for occasional trips to Compiègne station to take in water, etc., The German mission, through delay in crossing the fighting front, did not arrive until the early hours of Friday morning. The Germans were also accommodated in a train similar to Foch's, and this was placed on another set of rails about 100 yards away, a line of duckboards leading from one to the other. The weather, which during the week had been wet and misty, cleared overnight, and Friday the 8th of November, the first day of the conference, proved to be a bright sunny day, which showed to full advantage the rural setting of the whole scene. Looking out from Foch's train, there was nothing to be seen but trees and the little wood fires of the sentries posted around to keep away the curious, particularly from the German train, visible through the wood a short way away. Another line of duckboards ran in the opposite direction to the main road to Compiègne. About a quarter of a mile away lies the village of Frankport on the Aisne. Close by lies the Chateau de Frankport, erroneously reported in the press as the place where the conference was held. On arrival of the train containing the German delegates, Marshal Foch had sent over a staff officer to say that he would receive them at nine o'clock. So, punctually to the time, the German mission was seen advancing in single file across the duckboards. Leading the procession was Erzberger. Next came Obendorf and General Winterfeld, and finally Captain von Wanzelow. There were also two other junior military officers acting as interpreters. 
Personal descriptions of the delegates will be found at the end of this report. They all walked very slowly and manifested a certain limpness about the knee joints. The officers were in uniform and wore a form of sword bayonet, except the naval officer who wore a dirk. The civilians were in well-worn dark blue suits. None of the delegates could have been described as smart. On arrival at Foch's train, they were shown into the coach containing the office, part of which was arranged as a conference room. General Weygand then announced their arrival to Marshal Foch, who immediately afterwards entered, accompanied by Admiral Wems. The proceedings were opened by Marshal Foch asking the German delegates what was the object of their visit, to which Erzberger replied that they had come to hear proposals for an armistice on land, at sea, in the air and in the colonies. To this, Foch replied, I have no proposals to make. Count Obendorf then produced from his pocket an extract from one of Mr. Wilson's statements. Foch then stated that they could hear the terms if they wished to have an armistice, and that these were the terms of the Allied and Associated Powers. The Germans then decided to hear these terms. Before proceeding with the conference, Erzberger handed over his credentials. Marshal Foch, Admiral Wems, and General Weygand then retired to examine them. The credentials having been found in order, Marshal Foch and the other officers returned to the room and requested Erzberger to introduce the members of his mission. After this had been done, Marshal Foch introduced the French and British delegates. The Germans, having decided to hear the terms, General Weygand began the reading of the principal articles of the terms of armistice. The French interpreter translated each article into German as it was read. The proceedings were conducted in French. That is to say, the French and British delegates used the French language throughout. Erzberger spoke only in German, although he appeared to know enough French to be able to follow. General Winterfeld and Count Obendorf, however, spoke French. Captain Vanselow played only a very small part in the proceedings, but appeared also to know French. When the readings of the terms had been completed, by which time the Germans looked rather dejected, the question of communicating the terms to the German government arose. Marshal Foch offered to assist them in every way with wireless and other means. He stipulated, though, that the terms of the armistice must be sent in cipher if communicated by wire telegraph. As the Germans had not brought a cipher with them, it was arranged that Captain Heldorf should be sent to the German headquarters at Spa with a copy of the terms. The Germans then asked to be furnished with a certified translation of the French text, but were told that no translation was available. A request was now put forward by the German delegates for an immediate cessation of hostilities, so as to avoid useless bloodshed. General Winterfeld was the spokesman on this occasion, and whilst he was explaining the desirability of immediately stopping all fighting, referred to the rout of the German army. Uh, la déroute was the French word actually used, and the useless bloodshed entailed, if this continued until the conference had finished its deliberations. This remark would appear to form a fair index to the state of mind of the German delegates at that time. Marshal Foch informed them that no cessation of hostilities could take place until the terms already read had been accepted and signed. A plain language message was sent at the request of General Winterfeld, informing the German government that the first sitting had been held and that his request for an immediate cessation of hostilities had been refused. This ended the first sitting, and the Germans then retired with copies of the terms to their own train, the proceedings having lasted about an hour and a half. About lunchtime, Captain Heldorf, carrying the terms of armistice, departed in tears, so it was reported, for the German headquarters at Spa. Later in the day, various German delegates arrived over to discuss the details of the terms with French and British delegates. About 4pm, Captain Vanselow, the German naval delegate, came over and was received by Admiral Hope, 
Captain Marriott, and myself. He proposed to discuss the terms with us, said that in the event of the armistice being concluded, it would save time if the details were arranged beforehand, but that it must be understood that nothing he said could be taken as implying that they intended to accept the terms. It may be of interest to record briefly some of the views he expressed. With regard to Article 20 of the Naval Conditions, which provides for the immediate cessation of all hostilities at sea, and the furnishing of information as to the whereabouts of all German ships, he inquired whether we would undertake not to use such information to attack German ships. He was assured that that was out of the question, as to the terms of armistice provided for the cessation of all hostilities. In connection with the surrender of surface ships, he stated that the Mackensen was at least ten months off completion, and that consequently only five battle cruisers could be surrendered. He also said that all work on new construction had ceased some time ago. As regards destroyers, he remarked that the number 50 asked for was too high as nothing like that could be got ready. Although the Germans had many more than this number on paper, the wear and tear of machinery and craft in general had been so great that it would be difficult to find 50 boats sufficiently seaworthy to send over at once. The next complaint concerned the continuation of the blockade provided for in Article 26. According to the German view, the continuation of the blockade was not in accordance with the conception of the term armistice. Therefore, the blockade ought to be raised so as to allow of Germany revictualling herself with her own ships. He said that Germany was in a very bad way and that the continuation of the blockade would mean sickness and famine, more especially as the returning army would have to abandon a large part of its supplies. He also complained bitterly about the effect of the blacklist and hoped that it would be abolished. As a concession on this point, the last sentence stating that the Allies contemplated the revictualling of Germany was eventually added to Article 26. The meeting lasted about an hour, and then Captain Vanceley returned to the German train. On Saturday morning, there being no conference on, the British delegates took the opportunity to motor over to Soissons to see the damage done to this town by enemy bombardment. On arrival, the French officer accompanying the party was lucky enough to find an officer who had recently conducted the French president over the town. The latter took the party round, who were thus enabled to see all the points of interest. The British delegates arrived back at the train about 12 o'clock to find that there was no prospect of any further conference that afternoon. So, after lunch, the time was spent exploring the grounds of the neighbouring chateau of Frankport. Late in the afternoon, the Germans sent over their reply to the terms of the armistice, or rather a reasoned paper requesting certain modifications to the terms, arising mainly from technical disabilities to carry them out. This paper also contained remarks about the naval terms by Captain Vanceleau, and an exposition of the views he had expressed during the afternoon meeting on Friday. After dinner, these remarks were considered by the British delegates. Sunday was a busy day, commencing about 9am, with a conference with Captain Vanceleau, during which the various points raised by him in the above-mentioned paper were discussed. The procedure was to go into all the details, to discuss these and various difficulties arising, but to leave over for ultimate decision at the final conference with all the delegates. An interesting point arose at this conference. The question was whether Germany, under the then-existing political situation, would be in a position to carry out the terms of the armistice, more especially the surrender of the ships. Captain Vanceleau was of the opinion that although the Kaiser and the Crown Prince had renounced their claims to the throne, information which the Germans had obtained from the French Sunday newspapers sent over to their trains, and that there had been some disturbances, speaking generally, it would be possible for the German government, uh, whichever the part in power, to carry out the conditions. He could not, however, be certain that mutinous elements in individual ships might not damage or destroy their vessels. 
It was then suggested that we might have to occupy Heligoland to enforce the terms. Captain Vanslow did not, however, think this would be necessary. Various points regarding the surrender of ships were then discussed, and the meeting rose shortly before lunch. On Sunday evening, a plain language wire telegraph message addressed to the German delegates was received, instructing them to sign the armistice, but to add a declaration regarding the danger of a spread of Bolshevism in Germany if the provisioning of that country were not undertaken by the Allies. During the night, several further meetings between the French and German delegates took place, and also a further meeting with Captain Vanselow. The latter stated that he had just seen the revised terms and desired to thank us for having altered the condition regarding von Leto in East Africa, from surrender to evacuation. The next matter concerned the occupation of Heligoland, if it should be necessary to ensure the surrender of the German warships. Captain Vanselow said that this could not be included in the terms without first consulting the German government, as otherwise he might be tried for high treason on his return for surrendering German territory. As it would, however, have taken some time to obtain the concurrence of the German government, it was decided to attach the Heligoland stipulation as an annexure, stating that the German delegates would transmit this stipulation to the German Chancellor, with a recommendation that it should be accepted, adding the reasons for this demand on the part of the Allies. Finally, about 2am, the German delegates arrived for the final conference. From the above-mentioned telegram, the outcome of the conference was a foregone conclusion, and the Germans were not a little annoyed that the instruction to sign had been sent in plain language. At least this was the impression gathered from some remarks of Vanslow's during the preceding meetings. It could equally well have been sent in cipher, as two naval coders with the necessary books had arrived on Friday night, making communication in cipher possible, and incidentally a number of cipher messages were received by the Germans. The final conference then commenced its deliberations at about 2am on Monday the 11th of November. The procedure was for General Wegond to read out the terms, article by article. The French officer interpreter translated each article into German, and then, where necessary, after discussion the final form of the article was decided upon. The first point conceded by Foch was the alteration of the text of Article 2 to its present form in which Alsace and Lorraine are not termed occupied territory. Most of the other points on which discussion took place arose from the technical impossibility, according to the Germans, of carrying out the terms. For instance, General Winterfeld stated that it would not be possible to surrender more than 1,700 aeroplanes, as this was approximately the total number of machines available, 300 less than the number asked for. The evacuation of the occupied territories was illustrated by a large map showing the lines to be occupied by various dates. This was spread on the table and formed an annex to the terms. When the terms relating to the blockade came up for consideration, Erzberger tried to soften the hearts of the British and French delegates by telling them that, owing to the food shortage, large numbers of their women and children had died during the influenza epidemic. It was quite apparent that the blockade, coupled with the blacklist, had hit them very hard. The blacklist, and the various measures connected therewith, they referred to as the blockade on shore. Vanselet remarked that they had only undertaken the submarine war as a counterstroke to this shore blockade. When the reading of the terms had been completed, Erzberg arose and read out a declaration in German. In this, he stated that the German government would do everything in its power to carry out the terms. The German plenipotentiaries, however, desired to point out that some of the terms were so harsh as to be likely to bring about a state of anarchy and famine in Germany. The proceedings came to an end about a quarter past five, and the Germans were asked whether they would call the hour of signing 5am or 6am. They chose 5am French time.
The various documents were then signed, first by Foch and Wems, and then by the four German delegates. They had agreed to sign, without waiting for the amended version arising from the final conference, to be typed. So after they had returned to their own train, it was some time before the various documents were completed. Orders were then issued for a cessation of hostilities on land, and at sea, and in the air at 11am French time, the 11th of November, the duration of the armistice being for 36 days from that hour. One would have supposed that on such an occasion there would have been some outward display of enthusiasm on the part of the French officers on the conclusion of the armistice. Such, however, was not the case. About 6am, the commandant of the train produced a bottle of port and some biscuits, but it was not until one of the British officers proposed it that a toast was drunk to the great event. Before leaving, the Germans requested the British delegates meet a food expert and a transport officer to discuss the details of revictualling Germany. These, however, did not arrive, so about 9am, Captain Vanselow came over. He stated that he did not know much about the subject, but was of the opinion that Germany would require about 30,000 tonnes of edible fats per month, this being her principal need. He was informed that his remarks would be noted. At 8.20am, Marshal Foch and Admiral Wems left for Paris by car to lay the terms of the armistice before the French government. The train containing the Germans left at 10am for the front. Admiral Hope and myself left for Paris about 10.30am, arriving at the Hotel Maurice about half past 12. At first, as we drove through the countryside, there was nothing to show that anything unusual had occurred. It was only as the villages nearer Paris were reached that one began to notice signs of excitement. However, as soon as the outskirts of Paris had been reached, it was evident that everybody had heard the good news. Everybody was buying flags and decorating their houses with them. And by lunchtime, the people of Paris were marching about arm in arm, crying, La victoire! La victoire! After dinner that night at the Hotel Maurice, Admiral Wems was presented by two Canadian officers with a large silk table centre displaying the Allied flags. It turned out later that this was the property of the hotel. As Admiral Wems rose to leave, several French gentlemen at a table a short way off rose, intending to call for a speech or to drink his health, and called out Admiral. The latter had, however, just passed through the doors of the dining room and did not hear the shout. Consequently, nothing came of this intended demonstration. The British delegates left that night by train for Boulogne, crossing to Folkestone the next morning, the 12th of November, by destroyer. Thus ended a mission to France fraught with such great consequences to the Allies and, indeed, to the world at large. This podcast is a recording of extracts taken from records at the National Archives and is a copyright of the Crown. 